Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the PG Show, where we talk about all things college football. Today, I want to talk about the Oklahoma Sooners, what we should expect in this upcoming season and the 2023 recruiting cycle. But before we do that, go ahead and hit that like and subscribe button. Let me know what you guys are thinking down in the comments below. What are you guys most excited to see from this team, whether it's in 2023 or this upcoming season? All right, everybody, today I got a good one for you. I've got Parker Thune on here from the OU Insider 247 account. And today we're just going to break down um, this upcoming uh, season for the Sooners and the upcoming 2023 cycle. How are you doing, Parker? Doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, it's a Monday and I'm a little tired from the weekend. Um, I just proposed to my girlfriend over the weekend. So uh, it's Great. been crazy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's been crazy, though, trying to plan all that and keep it a secret. So I'm glad that's off my plate now and off my back. So now we just got a whole year of planning. So hopefully it's easier. But yeah, on that note, as you can see, I'm a huge OU fan. Um, so I, I, I go to the season tickets. I go to the I go to the, uh, games every year. Um, and so um, I kind of know what I should expect. But go ahead and tell us a little bit more about just what OU fans should realistically expect kind of going into the 22 season, especially with all that we lost, but then all that we gained on the flip side. Yeah, well, that's that right there is a very broad question. So when you when you ask what do you expect or what should fans expect, uh, is that more geared toward a specific record, uh, a specific style of play? Like what, what are you kind of angling at there with that question? Yeah, so, you know, obviously for the past, what's it been, five or six years, you know, we've had a Lincoln-Riley offense that's kind of just been uh, explosive, except for maybe, I would say, except for maybe last year. I think in 2020, at the beginning of the season, you probably could have made that argument too. But, um, you know, I, for years it sounded like with Baker and Kyler, um, the news uh, sports center, everybody talking would be like, oh, OU's going to have a fall-off here. OU's going to have a fall-off here. You know, um, and it, it, it didn't never seem like it to happen until about 2020, which was the year that shocked me because with Spencer Rattler in the back, I thought surely, or was it 2020 or 2021? I thought surely, you know, we would have, uh, you know, continued to roll a little bit. So, you know, just kind of give us a little more insight to that. Like, you know, what, where should fans realistically expect to see just from a play style for this team, but also, you know, record wise? Yeah, obviously Oklahoma fans are accustomed to a high-octane offense, which you mentioned. That was the Lincoln-Riley MO. And I think the refreshing thing, the thing that will provide some consistency uh, from a casual fan's perception is that there's still going to be plenty of high-octane offense in Norman, Oklahoma. Jeff Levy, or uh, excuse me, new offensive coordinator Jeff Levy runs a very, very up-tempo offense. Uh, they get to the line quickly. They snap the ball quickly. It's a no-huddle type of scheme. And so uh, when this team hits the field, they're going to move expediently on offense. And the trigger man at the, off, or at the uh, helm of it all is Dylan Gabriel, the transfer from UCF, who's obviously run Levy's offense before, not just experienced it, but actually run it. He was the starting quarterback as a true freshman for the Knights back in 2019 when Levy was the offensive coordinator at UCF. So my expectation, uh, Preston, is that the Sooners are going to continue to play pretty prolific offense. If you look at Levy's track record, he's right up there with Lincoln Riley in terms of most productive offensive play callers in the nation over the past few years. Now, uh, it's going to it's going to have its distinctions. It's not going to be the exact same style uh, that you've seen under Lincoln Riley. Obviously, uh, Lincoln Riley very much favored the read option. 
that's going to be less of an emphasized play style under Jeff Levy, simply because in Dylan Gabriel, you have a guy that uh, isn't quite built for the read option offense the way that Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray and Jalen Hurts were, for instance. And the offense did evolve somewhat under Spencer Rattler, who wasn't the most mobile guy either. But uh, then you saw it renewed uh, when Caleb Williams took the reins midway through the 2021 season. So Lebby, historically speaking, is a little bit more run heavy than Riley. And that's saying a lot, considering that Riley's offense actually leaned in the direction of the run on about a 55 to 45 split over the course of the seven seasons that he was Oklahoma's offensive play caller, whether as OC or whether as head coach in title. Uh, so my expectation is that the Sooners, in terms of their offensive production, won't experience much of a drop-off at all. And in fact, maybe a higher scoring team in 2022 than they were the final two years uh, of Riley's regime. And obviously, when you look at the offenses that the Sooners had in 2007, 2018, and 2019, those were three of the most prolific offenses in the history of college football. So that's a very, very high standard. And I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that Sooner fans should expect that this offense in 2022 is going to be playing on that same level, but do expect that it will give opposing defenses some problems simply because it moves so quickly and because Jeff Levy and Dylan Gabriel are both geared toward this frenetic style of football in which you pinpoint the defense's weakness and you attack it with both that tempo, that pace, and with plays called right off like essentially spur of the moment uh flying by the seat of your pants in essence you're reacting in the moment you're taking a look at where the defense's weaknesses lie and you're exploiting them with creative and clever play calling that's going to be oklahoma's mo under jeff levy and i think they got the perfect guy to execute that offensive style in dylan gabriel yeah and i would assume that when you're running that prolific of an offense and you're moving that quickly, um, your offensive linemen have to be in top tier shape um, because running up and down the field is going to be a little bit harder. Um, and I mean, is, is there going to be, I mean, do you expect to see, I feel like we all expect to see different development with Schmitty at the helm. Uh, but do you expect to see anything different from an offensive line scheme than what we've seen? I mean, I know Bill Biedenboe is still there, but with Jeff Lubby's offense, uh, do you think they're going to be running anything differently to kind of give those offensive linemen um, any breaks? You know, one of the things that I've talked about uh, with my colleague Teddy Lehman in the KREF studios and on the air a little bit as well uh, is the reality that when you are a former offensive lineman, you have the type of acumen to be able to call plays that suit your offensive line better than if you're a non-offensive lineman calling plays, right? And Jeff Levy is a former offensive lineman. He signed with the Sooners as a four-star offensive lineman in the class of 2002, I want to say. It was a while ago. Obviously never played. Uh, he had an injury uh, that held him out of action, and it eventually uh, prompted him to go straight into the coaching profession as a student assistant at Oklahoma. But I think that is going to be one of the distinct advantages uh, for the Sooners as it pertains to the offensive line is that they've got a guy in Jeff Levy who understands the challenges that offensive linemen face on a down-to-down -down basis. And you make an excellent point in that Jerry Schmidt 
is going to be pivotal and his workout regimen is going to be pivotal uh, as to how this offense gels because your offensive linemen, your big boys, they've got to be able to keep up with the tempo, right? And they do have to be well-conditioned. And that's the reason why all throughout the summer, Schmitty has them out there under the sun at 10, 11 a.m. working out in 90, 100-degree heat because when push comes to shove in September, October, November, et cetera, they're going to need to be the best-conditioned members of this football team in general, right? That's a general principle applicable to offensive linemen, but particularly in an offensive scheme that's going to run as quickly as Oklahoma's is, you're going to need your offensive linemen to be in tip-top shape, as you said. And I expect that they will be. And that's part of the reason that I expect the offensive line to be much more impactful and overall perform better than they have the last couple of seasons. It has less to do with Bill Biedenboe because He's an excellent offensive line coach, uh, but it has more to do with the reality that you now have Jerry Schmidt replacing Benny Wiley. As great as Bill Beanmo is at his job, there was only so much that he was going to be able to get out of those guys when Benny Wiley was running the workout regimen. Now that you have Jerry Schmidt back in the fold and you've got him working ardently all summer uh, to get these offensive linemen in the shape of their lives to be able to run Jeff Levy's offense in the fall. My expectation is that Oklahoma is going to see a big, big step up in terms of their ability to block for both the run and the pass effectively this fall. And to be honest with you, I I, I don't think Oklahoma's offensive line play has been bad the last couple of years. I think when you look at the numbers, when you look at what they've been able to do uh, as far as protecting the quarterback and as far as uh, paving the way for the running backs, there are a lot of teams, man, there are a lot of teams across the nation that would kill for the offensive line that Oklahoma has had the last couple of years. But it does pale in comparison to those stout lines that they had in 2017 and, of course, 2018 when they won the Joe Moore Award and have since put all five starters into the NFL. So I don't think it's far-fetched to believe that Oklahoma could approximate the kind of offensive line play that they were getting in 2017 and 2018 uh, from that group up front. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, it's harder to block for a quarterback that is kind of a little bit more sit in the pocket um, and is not as mobile. So, you know, that's why when Caleb came in, I kind of just told people, I'm like, it's going to get better and it's going to make it look better because he's mobile and he can move. Um, as a guy like Spencer who had to just sit back there, I think it's a little bit harder to make your offensive line look really good um, when they're just having to sit there and block for somebody that's just standing back there. So, but go ahead and give us a little more insight to this defense. So I know a lot of Sooner fans have seen um, Venables here before, and they've seen those defenses that he's put out. Um, my worry is that everybody's going to expect this just – absolute ruthless um, defense this year, like what we've had in the past with him. And I'm worried because, you know, it's he doesn't have all of his guys here yet in terms of players. He doesn't have um, a whole recruiting cycle of his own guys. And so I'm worried that fans are going to have too high of expectations of, hey, you know, we're only going to be like those Clemson defenses and allowing 15 points, you know, a game. And I'm like, uh, I still would expect 20. 20 would be better than where we've been. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, look, 
your expectations do have to be realistic, as you pointed out there. Oklahoma's not going to have the country's best defense in 2022, the way that Brent Venables has had at times at Clemson over his uh, decade as defensive coordinator there, immediately preceding his tenure as Oklahoma's head coach. Uh, it's unrealistic to expect that Oklahoma is going to have a truly elite defense in 2022. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying that shouldn't be anybody's expectation because uh, there has been so much change and there has been a total facelift uh, when it comes to defensive play calling and the scheme as a whole. I'm talking to Woody Washington at Big 12 Media Days last week, he said, look, uh, one of the things he mentioned to me is we ran maybe 30 total plays on defense last year. There were, uh, and from what I understand in conversations uh, with other folks that are close to the program, there were maybe three or four base defenses from which Oklahoma ran those couple dozen defensive plays. Under Brent Venables, that playbook has expanded mightily. And in talking with Woody, he said, Look, we're up to 60, 70 different defensive calls, all of which we will use, and we haven't even fully installed the playbook yet. So that is the one thing that makes Brent Venables' defense so difficult to handle for opposing offensive coordinators and quarterbacks is that it's so intricate, and it gives you so many varied looks. And it's going to take a while for everybody in terms of personnel on the defensive side to get up to speed with the demands of their respective position. And I do think when you look at Brent Venable's track record in general, he, he doesn't have it in him to not produce a top 25 defense. So you're going to see a lot better defense at Oklahoma this fall than you have seen over the last few years. Uh, honestly, maybe even going back a decade or longer. I think you probably have to go back to Brent Venable's tenure as Oklahoma's defensive coordinator to find the last time that uh, the Sooners will play, will have played the type of defense that I expect them to play uh, in 2022. I think they'll have a top 25 total defense uh, when you look at the landscape of college football. I don't know that it's a top five or top 10 defense, but I think it's going to be more than capable enough of getting the Sooners to the college football playoff if the offense gels, I I'm less concerned with the defense than I am with the offense. And I think that just has to do with the fact that there is so much more new on the offensive side of the football than there is on the defensive side. And I know that there's some folks may be listening to that and scratching their heads saying, well, didn't you just talk about how radically different it's going to be in terms of the defensive scheme? Yes, but you have cornerstones that you can bank on guys who are Sooners through and through who have been in this locker room, who are going to be vocal leaders uh, for this defense, and guys that are going to be able to share their wisdom with the younger members uh, of the group. I think about guys like Woody Washington, whom I just mentioned, Justin Broyles, a sixth-year senior, one of three holdovers from that 2017 recruiting class that has sent so many guys to the NFL level. Uh, Jalen Redmond is entering his fifth year as a Sooner, as is Deshaun White. When you look at the younger guys as well, Ethan Downs was handpicked to represent the Sooners at Big 12 Media Days, and people are raving about his leadership qualities and how he is mature beyond his years. Jaden Davis, whom a lot of people forget about, is going to be in contention to start at nickel 
for Oklahoma. And he's a guy that has been around the block a time or two and a guy that probably has a decent handle on Brent Venable's defense more so uh, than the rest of his peers because his runner-up coming out of high school was Clemson. His recruitment came down to the Sooners and the Clemson Tigers, who, of course, had Brent Venables at the time as their defensive coordinator. So I think that there is enough leadership, enough stability, and enough chemistry on the defensive side of the football that that unit's going to be less of a concern to me than the offense. And I don't want to make it sound like the offense is rolling into the season with a zillion question marks about what it's going to look like and who plays where and who gets the majority of the snaps at X position, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, there is more stability in an overall sense on the defensive side of the ball, as I see it uh, heading into 2022 than there is on the offensive side. So uh, if Sooner fans are concerned, I think the concern should lie in how quickly Jeff Levy's offensive philosophy takes root And to use a Brent Venables analogy, how quickly the Oklahoma offensive staff is able to water the bamboo to get them to where they need to be uh, as a football team going forward. Yeah, and, you know, I think there are a lot of questions for the offense, but correct me if I'm wrong, and this is just how I feel. I feel like our wide receiver room is in great shape. We were able to retain Jalil Farouk, Marvin Mims, and Theo Weiss, who I believe Marvin Mims and Theo Weiss were probably the two best receivers on the team. Theo Weiss has just been plagued by injuries, right? And Jaden Hazelwood was really good, but again, he really just didn't get as many touches as maybe we thought he should have got. And Mario Williams, an exceptional talent, you know, let's be honest, when the exodus happened and Caleb left, I, I expected Mario to leave. He came to play with Caleb. But I think the receiver room is in great shape. Um, when it comes to the quarterback room, with all the questions that were sitting there at quarterback last year with everybody asking for Caleb and not Rattler, I think we realized Rattler wasn't the guy for the system. And so I think, you know, with Dylan coming in, I think you kind of end up kind of where you were at with Caleb, maybe not as much upside, but you end up with the guy that can go out there, make the passes and win the games. And then I believe this running back room is probably better than any running back room that we've had since Joe Mixon and P. Ryan. But correct me if I'm wrong on any of that. No, and to start with the wide receiver room there, to me the big X factor is Theo Weiss, especially coming off injury, because you know what you're getting in Marvin Mims. If he's fed the ball, he's going to be one of the most dynamic wide receivers in the entire country. We've seen that potential. It's not as if we're talking about a guy that – hasn't yet broken out. That happened for Marvin Mims already, and it happened very early on in his career. By the end of the 2020 season, his true freshman season, everybody across the country realized what Oklahoma had in Marvin Mims. And that is, again, when he's fully healthy and when he's fed the ball, he is one of the most talented wide receivers in the country. So he is your clear wide receiver one in my eyes. Jalil Farouk, and this this goes back once again to the conversation I had with Woody at Big 12 Media Days. He said, look, Marvin's given me problems in practice. He always does. But, man, Jalil Farouk is going to be an issue. And every report I've heard in talking with people close to the program from January to now in July uh, seems to indicate the exact same thing about Jalil Farouk, which is that he is going to be a key cog in this Oklahoma passing attack and has the opportunity uh, 
to perhaps even outproduce Mims. I don't think that's out of the question because oftentimes when you have a guy that uh, has some skin in the game, uh, the way that Mims does, who's been there before and whom opposing defenses are going to very intentionally scheme to try and shut down, the benefactor is often the guy on the other side, and that's going to be Jalil Farouk, as I see it, for Oklahoma. You know what you're getting in Drake Stoops, a very reliable slot receiver who will never drop a pass, ever. In Theo Weiss, what do you get out of him in 2022? That is the biggest question to me as it pertains to the wide receivers. And I'm not saying it's all on his shoulders to be that fourth guy alongside Stoops and Mims and Jalil Farouk because you've got Jaden Gibbs and the true freshman coming on very, very strong. I am intrigued by what the Sooners have in J.J. Hester, the 6'4", 196-pound Missouri transfer. I'm a big fan of L.V. Bunkley-Shelton, the transfer from Arizona State. There's a lot of depth in that wide receiver room. But Theo Weiss is still a former five-star recruit. Right, still, I I think when he came out of high school, he was a top twenty prospect nationally, and so the ceiling has always been astronomical for Theo Weiss, and he was he was as productive as any member of that Oklahoma receiving core in twenty twenty. He was oftentimes the go to third down target for Spencer Rattler, and I think with his skill set, his combination of size, speed, ball skills. He's got a chance to be to truly be a mismatch and might be the most complete wide receiver on Oklahoma's roster, assuming he is fully recovered from that foot injury that cost him, in essence, the entire 2021 season. So I think Weiss could be one of those guys that you pinpoint, and we're looping back around and talking about in October and November, as somebody uh, that has either drastically increased uh, – Oklahoma's ability to spread the wealth and give the opposing defense problems because of how many capable wideouts are on the field, or uh, he's a guy that uh, has just really never been the same since the foot injury, and he's still good for a touchdown catch every now and again, but uh, he's no longer the threat he once was. Based on what I've heard about Theo Weiss dating back to February, March, when he really started to get back in the swing of things, I'm inclined to believe that he is going to be an integral part of this passing attack in 2022 uh, and should be just as good, if not better than he was in 2020. But again, there is so much unknown when you're, when you're coming off an injury that cost you an entire season with the running backs. I've been, I've been driving the hype train for Javante Barnes since long before he was ever an Oklahoma sooner, long before anybody even had the inkling that he was considering Oklahoma as a potential landing spot. Uh, towards the tail end of his recruitment. I watched the kids film in March or April of 2021 and was instantly sold. I thought he, I still think he's the best back in that entire 2022 class. And based on what everybody got to see in the spring game, based on uh, the things that I heard behind the scenes about him throughout the spring, that's a kid that could be starting at running back for Oklahoma by midseason. And I don't want to place expectations on Javante Barnes that are too lofty because it's not going to be all on his shoulders. The Sooners have another guy in Eric Gray in that backfield who's a multi-year, thousand-yard, uh, thousand-scrimmage-yard guy, excuse me, uh, when you look back at his days at Tennessee. And obviously he, he took a back seat to Kennedy Brooks somewhat in that 2021 campaign, but he can shoulder the load uh, if Javante Barnes doesn't live up to the billing. That said... 
I think he is going to live up to the billing. And he has the opportunity to contribute meaningfully in 2022 and potentially seize the bull by the horns and be the lead guy in that backfield. If that doesn't happen, that's fine. He's a true freshman. And you have to go back to 2014 when Samaj P. Ryan uh, really popped off out of nowhere uh, for something like 1,800 yards uh, as a true freshman to go back to really the final last time that an Oklahoma freshman running back truly made a productive den. I guess Trey Sermon in 2017 was pretty good, but uh, the Sooners haven't gotten elite production from a freshman running back really in school history outside of Samaj P. Ryan in 2014 and Adrian Peterson in 2004. Those are the two guys that stand out. Javante Barnes certainly has the opportunity uh, to put together a season that eclipses the campaign that Sermon had in 2017. And while I'm not necessarily saying he even approaches P. Ryan's ridiculous numbers from 2014, uh, he is the guy that I I like the best out of those running backs. I think his ceiling is the highest. I think it all just boils down to how quickly he gets it. And that's the thing for every single freshman, right? They've got to get it. And as long as Javante Barnes gets it, I think he is the lead back in Oklahoma's backfield. And I agree by mid season, uh, I think he could be earning starting reps beyond those two gray and Barnes. You have a very highly regarded walk on in Tawi Walker, junior college transfer a kid that I believe led the Sooners in rushing yards in the spring game, very much a bowling ball back five foot 10, something like 230 pounds. So he packs a punch and I think he will factor into the game plan as well. You'll see him in meaningful situations, maybe not a ton, but I think he sees the field in 2022 and not just in garbage time. And then the, the big, unquantified variable is Marcus Major, who was so highly regarded out of high school, four-star prospect from right up the road at Millwood High School in Oklahoma City. When does it come together for him? That's the biggest question. When does it come together for the kid? And can he work his way up the depth chart to the point where he's competing with Barnes and Gray for carries? Because at this point, I think there's a very clear gap between Barnes and Gray and the rest of the running back room. And I love Tawi Walker. I do. But we're talking about level of talent here. And you're talking about the ceiling that these backs have. Javante Barnes and Eric Gray blow the rest of them away, in my mind. And Barnes, I believe, has the potential to be truly special. I've compared him to Rodney Anderson in the past. And I think that comparison holds true. Uh, If everything comes together for him in 2022, he could have a year that uh, approximates what Anderson did in 2017 when, of course, the Sooners had one of the great offensive teams in recent memory and went to the college football playoff. So uh, there is depth at running back, and that should provide some reassurance to Sooner fans is that it's not all on the shoulders of one guy. And it hasn't been in years past, but uh, you know that regardless of whether Barnes breaks out, regardless of whether Gray shows uh, he is deserving of feature back duty, regardless of whether it ever comes together for major. There are so many different ways uh, and so many uh, different methods by which the Sooners can employ each of their backs that you're going to get production out of the backfield one way or another. Yes. Yeah. I think that's really interesting that you're putting Eric Gray in such a highly regarded um, because 
I thought he was going to be really good when he came in, and I was just not impressed last season. And so this season, I'm kind of like on edge, like, okay, like, what are we going to get out of Eric Gray? Because I just wasn't impressed last season. So that's interesting that you tout him so highly. Yeah, I mean, look, you look at what he did at Tennessee. That Tennessee offense was atrocious while he was there. The fact that he was able to rack up a thousand scrimmage yards and that abbreviated 2020 campaign with that offense and that quarterback, Jarrett Garantano at the helm is astonishing. Mad props and a tip of the cap for Eric Gray for what he was able to do um, in that 2020 season as the lead back in the volunteers backfield. I I'm tempering expectations for Gray simply because I'm so high on Barnes. And so I don't want to make it sound like I expect Gray to rack up a thousand scrimmage yards again. I think it's very possible, but that running back room has so much competition and so much depth that I think it's, it's really anybody's job heading into the fall. I think the smart money is on Gray and I think the bold money is on Javante Barnes, but Who's to say Marcus Major doesn't come out in fall camp and blow people away? All right, so let's go ahead and let's talk about the upcoming uh, schedule for the Sooners this year. Um, I think it's, in my opinion, really favorable. Um, you got a lot of teams at home, um, and I feel like you got a lot of easy road games, um, especially with the first two games at home. We've got UTEP and Kent State. Um, one's at 2.30, one's at 6. So what do you think about those two games? I mean, those are those are two wins. Anyway, slice it. Those are two tune-up performances for Oklahoma as they head into what will be a very hostile road environment in Lincoln, Nebraska, on September seventeenth. So I think those games are more about figuring out what you have in your arsenal, both offensively and defensively, as you prepare for a very strenuous road test uh, up at Memorial Stadium in Lincoln. So. Uh, I don't expect that those games are going to get too hairy or too interesting with UTEP and Kent State. Those should be one-sided defeats uh, for Oklahoma. Those should be romps. Those are the type of games you'd hope are over by halftime. Uh, so I, you know, I try not to put too much stock into non-conference play unless there truly is a game on that schedule uh, that has the opportunity to alter the course of a team's season, even that early on in the process. And uh, I think that game is September 17th against the Nebraska Cornhuskers. I think that along with the Red River showdown on October 8th, um, those are the two biggest games on Oklahoma's schedule in my eyes. Wow. Wow. Biggest games on the schedule, even outside of Baylor and Oklahoma State. So it's yes. interesting because, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we all expect OU to come in and just steamroll UTEP for sure. I mean, uh, Brent Venable's first game back, I think the fans are going to be rowdy, and I think the players are going to want to come out and just dominate that. Sucks that it's a 2.30 game because we all know it's going to be super hot on September 3rd. Um, but you kind of alluded a little bit to that at Nebraska game, and this one really intrigues me and but also really scares me for the Sooners. One, because you've got a new quarterback in Casey Thompson out there. Um, Scott Frost is potentially on the hot seat. Um, and Nebraska was the best three and nine team probably ever in the history of college football last year. So, <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> you're rolling your eyes, but seriously, like, is there any, like, should there be any worry that, oh, you could go in there and drop the ball and lose that game in Brent Venable's first year? Is there a worry? Yes. But 
with regard to Nebraska and their claim to being the best three and nine team in history last year, there's no such there's no such thing as the best three and nine team ever. If you if you're three and nine, you suck. And Nebraska did last year. Now, granted, they lost eight of those nine games in one score fashion, and I, I, it might have been all nine actually, if I remember correctly, but. They they made a habit of losing close football games, but a loss is a loss is a loss. And the biggest problem for that Nebraska football program right now is they don't know how to win. And you saw that last year. You saw that they didn't know how to win. They continually put themselves in the type of positions where if you're a football team that knows how to win, you go and get to win. And if you're a football team that doesn't know how to win, you find a way to choke it away. And the Sooners did that time and again over the course of the 2021 season. They played Oklahoma really, really tight down at uh, Owen Field in mid-September. And it was a phenomenal, phenomenal defensive performance from the Cornhuskers. Adrian Martinez played one of the best games he's ever played as a collegian. But this is a radically different Nebraska football team last year to this year. And... uh I understand that they're much in the same boat as Oklahoma in that regard. They underwent a lot of change with regard to both the coaching staff and the player personnel on the field. But I don't think Nebraska wins this game. And the reason I don't think that's true is because, you know, as a Nebraska native, as somebody that has watched that team for years and years and years, and has gotten the chance to follow them closely over Scott Frost's four years at head coach, as head coach, I just don't think that team has the ability to cultivate a winning identity under Scott Frost. And I've, I've said it from the get-go with him. He's a good football coach. The Nebraska football program is a good football program, a historic football program. It's one of the best jobs in college football, if done right, but Scott Frost just never was a fit there to me. I never, I never liked the fact uh, that Nebraska seemingly handed the job to him uh, when there were so many other capable candidates at their disposal that they should have at least uh, given the time of day to. I, I was very much in the boat uh, at the end of the 2020 season that they should have ran Scott Frost out of town and went and hired Marcus Freeman. Of course, he's now the head coach at Notre Dame, and I love Marcus Freeman. I think he's going to be immensely successful there. But Nebraska, man, I just – I don't know if they can crack it under Scott Frost because the buck always stops with the head coach, right? And for this Nebraska team, we're not just talking about the 2021 season uh, when we say they don't know how to win. If you look at the entirety – of Scott Frost's tenure as head coach at Nebraska. It has been excruciating loss after excruciating loss, agonizing defeat after agonizing defeat. There are teams that just find a way to win football games. I think about Baylor in 2019 as an outstanding example of that type of uh, program with that type of identity. Baylor didn't overpower or overwhelm anybody that year. But they found a way to win football games, and that's the reason why they ended up playing in a New Year's Six Bowl and coming very, very close to knocking off Oklahoma for the Big 12 championship. Nebraska seems to just find a way to lose, man. And it's sad, and 
it's unfortunate because, you know, I, I know as well as anyone how devoted those fans are and how long-suffering they are at this point. I mean, it's been a good long while since they saw their program field a competitive football team. But I just – I'm not convinced anything changes for Nebraska in 2022, and I think that program needs a facelift from the top down if they're going to be able to not only compete with a team like Oklahoma – but go and beat a team like Oklahoma because there's a difference there, right? That Nebraska team could compete with OU last year, but I would argue that they were never going to win that football game. I don't feel as close as the scoreboard looked at the end of the game, 23 to 16 in favor of the Sooners. That always felt like a game that the Sooners had in hand from the get-go. And when that's the type of football that you're playing as a team where you know you're going to be in games, but for whatever reason, you just can't seem to finish. At a certain point, man, you need to you need to institute some radical change. And the day of reckoning is coming for Nebraska. Until then, as much as I like Casey Thompson, uh, as much as I like some of the additions that Oklahoma, or that uh, Nebraska, excuse me, has made via the transfer portal, such as O'Shawn Mathis, the phenomenal edge rusher uh, and former TCU Horn Frog, I just don't see them winning that football game on September 17th. They need to go back and hire Bo Pelini again. Just bring him back. Give it another run. Hey, I I was very much of the opinion that they never should have ran Pelini out of town. But I do understand that, you know, eight, nine wins a year doesn't really – doesn't really give you a whole lot of job security at a certain point when you're at a program like Nebraska that is accustomed uh, to playing for and winning national championships. We're a quarter century removed from Nebraska's last title. And while that feels like a long time ago, the reality is it's only a drought that's three years longer than Oklahoma's right now. The difference is OU's winning, you know, 10 to 12 games a season. That's exactly. the difference. Exactly. So, um, all right. Well, let's get in these next two games. And I think – so there's two games on the schedule that I think are uh, trap games, and I think it's TCU and Iowa State. But so right here we have Kansas State at home, and then we have at TCU. Is Should there be any concern here for the Sooners having to play K-State at home, or should there be concern of having to go play TCU? K-State's going to be tough. I think K-State is the type of team that could play for a Big 12 championship in 2022. And I think they have the potential to win double-digit games. I'm very, very high on that program. They have a lot of talent. And it seems weird to be saying that about Kansas State, right? Because traditionally, Kansas State is the team that wins games in spite of their ostensible lack of talent. But whether you're talking about Felix and DK Ozoma on the defensive side, Adrian Martinez, uh, one of the best running backs in the entire country in Deuce Vaughn, uh, outstanding wide receiver, uh, an a- athletic specimen in Malik Knowles. There is so much talent on th- that Kansas State roster. There is so much talent. And I give the edge to Oklahoma because they're playing at home and because I I don't necessarily trust Adrian Martinez to keep the ball out of harm's way against a Brent Venables defense, because when you have a turnover prone quarterback, that's one thing that Brent Venables is going to take full advantage of. But I don't think that win against Kansas state is going to come easy to me with TCU. The distinguishing factor and the thing that I'm watching the most 
is who is TCU's starting quarterback in 2022? Because if it's Max Duggan, I don't think they beat Oklahoma. I don't think they contend with Oklahoma. If it's Chandler Morris, though, that's where that team has the opportunity to make some noise. And that is why I will be very closely monitoring the starting quarterback battle down in Fort Worth uh, as fall camp progresses. I think this team and this offense has a much higher ceiling with Chandler Morris calling the shots than they do or ever will with Max Duggan at the helm. And that's not a knock on Duggan. He's a fine quarterback. But when Morris is good, he is really good. Borderline elite. You saw it last year against Baylor. Chandler Morris was the only reason why Baylor didn't earn a college football playoff berth last year because he put up something like 530 total yards against them in that home upset victory over the Bears, I believe a week or two before they knocked off Oklahoma uh, for the Sooners' first loss of that 2021 campaign. So I don't know what to think of TCU, and I'm not going to know what to think until I know who their starting quarterback is. That's where I stand. Uh, with that football program. But if it's Chandler Morris that gets the nod, yeah, they, you'd be well advised to watch out for that TCU team because uh, that's not that's not a win that's going to come easy either. All right, so let's just assume OU's 5-0 and at that point, right? And let's just assume Texas is 4-1 and going into that game. That's a pretty big game. Um, since 2010, OU's won 10 times, um, only lost three times. Now one of those came in the Big 12 championship game um, OU's won it four times in a row. Do you think they can extend that to a five-game win streak over Texas, or do you think this is the year that Texas can finally get over the hump um, with, I mean, just that talented team? I mean, they're that, that team is talented. Yeah, look, I'd, I've drank the burnt orange Kool-Aid one too many times. I'm not going to believe it till I see it with Texas. And... I, they're, they're coming off a five and seven season, man. I understand that they have a lot of talent on both sides of the ball, especially on offense. I understand the hype for Quinn Ewers, but I, I just can't make myself believe that this is the year it comes together for this Texas team. Cause it seems like we've been saying that for 10 or 12 years now. Right. And so I trust Oklahoma and I trust Brent Venables more than I trust Steve Sarkeesian and Quinn Ewers. And that's what it comes down to for me again. Uh, and another thing I'll bring up is you look at the last seven, eight years in this rivalry, these games are almost all one-score games, but Oklahoma's won all but one of them, right? That twenty, that first game in 2018 that the Sooners eventually avenged in Arlington. The Sooners, regardless of who has been the head coach, who has been the quarterback, what they've had in terms of ammunition on the offensive and de- defensive side of the ball, they've found a way to win this game, and I believe they will again. All right, cool. All right, so next up on the schedule, we have the team that almost got us last year that I, for shadow of a doubt, do not believe was an accident, the Kansas Jayhawks. (laughs) They almost got us last year. They almost got us, and the power going out was not an accident. You know it. Okay, well, that's, I mean, we're verging on conspiracy theories now. But uh, that that performance was inexplicable. And Lincoln Riley quite deservedly came under a lot of fire in the aftermath of that football game. Kansas is not a good team. They are not. And I think that program is actually headed in the right direction. 
I'm very high on Lance Leipold as a football coach. And I think if there's a guy that's going to turn it around at Kansas, they got the right guy right now, but they still have, (laughs) they're still so starved for playmakers, man. And I think this is a team that can win four or five games this year and start working back towards bull eligibility, but they're not going to beat a team like Oklahoma. They're not. And uh, especially with uh, Venables and Ted Roof calling the shots on defense. People forget Ted Roof won a, def- won a national championship in 2010 as Auburn's defensive coordinator. So he's got some credentials too, especially with those two teaming up to call the shots on defense. I don't see any way that that Kansas offense makes a whole lot of headway against Oklahoma in that contest. So I think the Sooners win that one handily the way that they should have a year ago. Now, this is the game that I think potentially can get OU, um, assuming that they're undefeated at this point, and it's at Iowa State. It's a night game in Ames, and I believe it's on a Thursday night as well, which lots of teams have fallen to Iowa State, one of the famous ones, that Oklahoma State team. What's your thoughts on this one? Because I think this one's probably the most interesting game on their schedule. Yeah, so that one was worrying me when it was scheduled for Thursday night, it's actually now been moved. It's going to be played on Saturday. And so, uh, especially coming off a bye week, having to undergo that irregular week of practice that leads up to a Thursday night kickoff, uh, that was a game that always had the potential to give Oklahoma some problems because it doesn't matter how uh, well-grounded and how tightly knit a program is. When you got to face an irregular week of practice, especially coming off a bye, and then go to a hostile road environment and play on a Thursday night, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to perform the way that you otherwise would on any given Saturday. But now that game's happening on Saturday, uh, my concerns are alleviated. And it's a little bit unclear what Iowa State's offense is going to look like. Is it going to be Hunter Deckers at quarterback? Is it going to be Nate Glantz at quarterback? Who's going to fill Brees Hall's shoes? Xavier Hutchinson is an outstanding wide receiver, all Big 12 preseason first teamer. But they've got to replace a lot. They've got to replace a lot, both offensively and defensively, when you look at the losses of guys like Greg Eisworth and Mike Rose. It's a lot easier to replace that type of talent at a place like Oklahoma than it is at Iowa State. And so, especially coming off a 7-6 and six campaign a year ago when everybody and their mother expected Iowa State to be right back in Arlington playing for the Big 12 championship, uh, I'm, I'm not buying this team. And I think they'll be adequate. I think they'll win seven, eight games again. But... They don't make serious noise in the race for the Big 12 championship in my eyes. And so uh, that's a game that, especially now that it's going to be played on a Saturday, that's a game I expect Oklahoma to win. Well, I had no idea that game got moved. So you just gave me um, a sigh of relief there. Because <laughs> that one scared there me you go. a little bit. So uh, next up is another really tough game. It's Baylor at home. Um, I feel like they should win this because it's at home. And after that whole situation last year, I feel like OU fans are going to be a little rowdy for that one because, um, I mean, I was not a fan of what happened after that game. I feel like they should have just called it, but. Sure, but nobody's going to remember that game, (laughs) especially by the time it rolls around this fall. Nobody's going to remember what happened in Waco a year ago because uh, most everybody will have blocked out any and all memories that prominently involve 
Lincoln Riley. So I'm not sure whether there's going to be much of a subplot there at all. I do think Baylor's going to be a really good football team. And I wonder what Blake Shapin looks like over the first half of the season, because I think that's going to tell us a lot about how far this team can travel. Obviously, Dave Aranda was confident enough in Blake Shapin that he named him his starter at the conclusion of spring ball and pushed Gary Bohan into the portal. That's how convincingly Blake Shapin won that starting job at Baylor. So if he is as advertised, this Baylor team is absolutely a team that will win double-digit games and be in contention to go back to Arlington. Could very well be the cream of the crop in this conference, at least in the regular season, could beat Oklahoma on their home turf. Baylor is a very well-coached football team. They've got players on both sides. And if there's one defensive mind in the nation that can go toe-to-toe with Brent Venables, I think it's Dave Aranda. Dave Aranda by no means has a resume that is as extensive and as impressive as Brent Venables. But Dave Aranda can coach some defense, man. And so uh, you also have to keep in mind the fact that Dave Aranda coached against Jeff Levy in, what was it, was it the Peach Bowl? Was it the Sugar Bowl? It was the Fiesta Bowl. It was the Fiesta Bowl, I think, uh, this past winter when Levy was still the offensive coordinator at Ole Miss and Dave Aranda. Or did Levy coach that game? Now I'm getting all tight. I, I think he did, but I mean, it was he. He didn't have like great quarterback for that game. I mean, it's not like he had well, all because, the tools. Yeah, Matt, and Matt Corral got hurt. Yeah. Matt Corral got hurt. They were rolling with a true freshman and Luke Altmyer by the end of it. But the point is, Dave Aranda and that Baylor defense powered down what was either way Jeff Lebby's offense in that bowl game. So uh, if there's if there's a defensive mind in this conference that can unravel what Lebby schemes, it is Dave Aranda. That gives me a lot of apprehension surrounding that Baylor game, even though it is in Norman this year. I think it's I think it's way too early. When you start talking about games that are later on in the season, right? it's way too early to predict which way those games are going to swing because so much depends on the momentum that you accrue as a program over the first half of the season and uh, attrition due to injury. And the circumstances uh, surrounding your locker room, and there's there's so much that can affect uh, the way that a team looks in week one versus the way that they look in week nine, for instance. We're not gonna we're not gonna have the same perception. I don't know if it's gonna be a better or worse perception. I don't necessarily know one way or the other, but we're not gonna have the same perception of Oklahoma as a football team or Baylor is a football team in the week leading up to that game as we do right now. I can guarantee you that. So I think it's far too early to project which way that game goes. But at the moment, on paper, that's essentially a coin flip between those two programs. Yeah, well, we'll just put an asterisk next to that one like we do the Texas game. So the next three, I just feel like, I feel like, oh, you should walk through these next three, even with JT Daniels going to West Virginia. But it's at West Virginia, Oklahoma State at home, and then you go to Lubbock. Yeah, exactly. Those should be three victories. And uh, Oklahoma State is not going to be the same caliber of football team that they were a year ago. 
I like where Texas Tech is headed, but they still have a lot of question marks, most ostensibly at the quarterback position. And then with West Virginia, Oklahoma has never lost to that program since they joined the Big 12 back in 2012. And I, I maybe, maybe there's a blizzard in Morgantown that changes my feelings about the way that that game goes down, but I can't imagine that offense going toe-to-toe with Levy and Dylan Gabriel and the Sooners offense because that, that West Virginia offense has been anemic the last couple of years, and I don't think JT Daniels is a quick fix. I don't. I think the issues are far more systemic than that. So I would expect that OU closes uh, the season with three sure victories against West Virginia, Oklahoma State, and Texas Tech. I would be surprised uh, if any of those games are closer than two scores. Yeah, I think the floor for Oklahoma this year is nine wins, and I think the ceiling is at least a college football playoff berth. You know, I think that's realistic. I don't think OU's winning a first-round game this year, but I think they can get there um, if everything falls in line. But I don't think they're losing any more than three games. So, sure. But let's go ahead and let's uh, transition a little bit into the just 2020-2023 recruiting class. Um, and I only got a couple of things I wanted to cover here, right? Uh, the first one being Peyton Kirkland. I know that this is one that everybody's kind of been watching. Um and it sounds like now he's going to Michigan State. However, I have a hard time believing that that's where everybody knows he's going to go just because it seems like it's been hard to get a lock on him since the beginning. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it has been difficult to get an accurate read on where Peyton Kirkland is leaning. But at this point, I also believe it's going to be Michigan State. And that has more to do with the fact that uh, Oklahoma has backed off and they and Peyton Kirkland are going uh, different directions and uh, talking to folks with connections in the Florida circle and the Alabama circle and the Miami circle. It appears that those programs have taken the same approach. So right now uh, among Peyton Kirkland's top five, there's one school that he is a surefire take at, and that is Michigan state. So, uh, I expect that he will be a Spartan come Saturday. I mean, that's an interesting one because that means OU is going to have lost two players this cycle to Michigan State and by Job and Peyton Kirkland. So that's that's pretty interesting. Maybe a little recruiting well, rivalry up there. But perhaps, nah, I I don't know if I would go that far. But uh, by Job, I'm sure it's a loss. That was a player that Oklahoma wanted. I don't know if you quantify it as a loss uh, in Peyton Kirkland's case because Oklahoma. Uh, I th- I think could have had Peyton Kirkland, but uh, they eventually got tired of the charade. And because that recruitment uh, became so shrouded in mystery uh, and so difficult to keep up with, whether you are a fan, a recruiting analyst, or a coach, uh, I think that's the kind of charade, like I said, that the Oklahoma staff in its current iteration just isn't really down for. And so I don't really quantify that one as a loss. I don't really think by Job was uh, staying home one way or another, but uh, props, no doubt, to Mel Tucker and his staff if they can close on Peyton Kirkland, especially because uh, they are recruiting very well right now. And regardless of by Job's affinity or lack thereof for the hometown program in the University of Oklahoma, to pull a kid like that from a thousand miles away and convince him to come to East Lansing, Lansing, excuse me, that's impressive. Yeah, so what's your take on 
what's going on with the defensive line recruiting right now. Um, last time I checked, I don't think we had anybody right for the 2023 class. If I might, if I'm wrong, but I don't think we have anybody just yet. Well, you have PJ Adabare, okay. uh, and I don't really know whether you quantify him as an or classify him as an offensive line or a defensive lineman, excuse me, or not. Uh, but he is your first commit at the edge position. The Sooners have zeroed in on Cecilia Kana as the other guy that they want uh, coming off the edge in this cycle. When you're talking about the interior defensive lineman, obviously every Sooner fan across the entire fan base is waiting with bated breath for the announcement from Derek LeBlanc next Thursday. Right now it looks like Derek LeBlanc is going to be a Sooner. Everything seems to point in that direction as we get closer and closer to the decision date, and that's confirmed by uh, recruiting experts that cover Florida and Miami, for instance, putting in uh, expert predictions in favor of Oklahoma for Derek LeBlanc. Everything right now is trending in OU's direction in that recruitment. So uh, if you score a top 100 interior defensive lineman to kick off your class within that position group, that's big time. That's a splash for Todd Bates. Obviously, I think it is way too early to say with any degree of certainty where David Hicks ends up, whether that's Oklahoma or elsewhere, because that's a recruitment that's probably going to last another six months or so. Uh, but outside of LeBlanc and outside of DJ Hicks, uh, the Sooners are very much in it for Jordan Renaud. That's an Oklahoma-Alabama battle. Uh, looks like another Oklahoma-Alabama battle for Edric Hill, the four-star defensive lineman from North Kansas City and a high school teammate of P.J. Atabare. Uh, that's another guy that's in play for them, as is Johnny Bowens, a recent Texas A&M decommit and high school teammate of another Sooner target in three-star wideout Anthony Evans. So there are a lot of possibilities on the table right now. You can throw Caden McDonald from the state of Georgia into the mix as well. Uh, so there's Todd Bates has cast a very, very broad net when you're talking about interior defensive linemen. Right now, the surest bet appears to be LeBlanc. Beyond that, it's anybody's guess, but there are some very legitimate possibilities still out there. Yeah, I think David Hicks is definitely a really good possibility. Um, if OU goes out there and wins 11 or 12 games um, this season, um, I think that could really turn the tide in that recruitment. So... Yeah, very well could. And uh, it's it's not going to come easy because uh, Lord knows Alabama's going to win games too. And you think about uh, David Hicks' other finalists, Texas A&M will win games, Miami will win games. I don't think any of uh, the seven teams uh, that have prioritized him and that he has in turn prioritized in his recruitment are going to fall flat on their face. Oregon will win. Uh, Michigan State will win. So it, it's going to be splitting hairs all the way till the end. But I like where Oklahoma sits in that recruitment right now. I'm still being very, very cautious with it, though, because it seems almost too good to be true, Preston. David Hicks is likely the best high school football player I've ever watched with my own two eyes in person. I mean, he is a true game changer and has the potential to be generational. So if Oklahoma lands that kid, you will, you will see him play as a freshman. You will. Promise yeah, um, I personally, I just think if this recruitment goes all the way through the season, Texas A&M's out because Texas A&M, I think, is going to have a pretty abysmal season um, for their recruiting class that they had 
last year, and which I think helps OU because if they have an abysmal season, I think you're going to start seeing some of their defensive linemen uh, hit that transfer portal. And we know there were a couple that OU were uh, targeting that ended up at A&M, so that could help them out. But um, I've kind of said it, you know, OU fans are antsy about the five stars. Um, obviously, Arnold's a five star now, but Petaway, Green, and Adebore, they're right on the edge. I think that they're all three going to end up as five stars at the end of the cycle. Do you think that's a possibility at all? No, I don't. I don't think all three will be five stars. Um, if I had to guess, I will say, especially with the density at the top of this wide receiver class, I think Petaway stays on the very, very high end of the four-star range. I think Caden Green is going to be somewhere in that 50 to 75 range when it's all said and done. Uh, I don't, I don't perceive him as having the, uh, the requisite traits uh, to become a five-star. And that has nothing to do with the caliber of football player that he is that because he's an excellent football player. But if you want to be a five-star as an offensive lineman, you got to have some, you got to have a few things that are just God given. Right, you look at Caden Proctor, who's the number one offensive tackle in the class. He's six foot eight, three hundred and thirty pounds. Right? Like that's that's a can't miss prospect if there ever was one. And he's a he's an athletic six eight three thirty. He's not a fat six eight three thirty. That is an athletic, muscular, well defined six eight three thirty. So if you're going to be a five star offensive tackle, and particularly if you're going to make a late rise to ascend into that territory. You got to have that kind of physique. You got to have something about you that just makes people's jaws drop. And I've watched a lot of Caden Green over the years. And like I said, he is an outstanding football player. Uh, he is versatile. He can play tackle, guard, center. I believe he'll be in the two deep as a true freshman at Oklahoma and could be in the mix to start but I think it's somewhat unrealistic to expect that he will ultimately be a five-star, especially with how far he would have to rise this late in the process. The guy that I do think can be a five-star, and I would say will be a five-star, is P.J. Adabare. Because if you're talking about traits that will make scouts salivate, the kid has them. Six foot five, 240 pounds, a seven foot one wingspan. I mean, he's got freakishly long arms. And in his first full season of playing defense a year ago, he racked up 17 and a half sacks at North Kansas City. There's a reason why he has gone from completely unranked eight months ago to a top 50 player nationally now. On three, has him as the number seven player in the country and a five star. So that is a guy that has always had a ton of upward mobility as he continues to develop at the position and he as he continues uh, to put up tape. Because when you're that new to a position and you produce at the level that he did a year ago, if you can replicate that as a senior, if PJ has the same type of season this fall as he did last fall, he's got the potential to be a top 25 composite player by the conclusion of the cycle. That is not at all out of the realm of possibility. I do think PJ Adabari is going to be a five-star. So if there's one out of those three uh, that I think will ascend to that level, um, 
I'm not quite buying it on Petaway, not quite buying it on Green, but I would buy it on PJ. Yeah, and stars don't necessarily matter, especially with Brent Venables. He's going to um, develop them. Um, so I, I think OU fans probably need to chill down on that one a little bit, but I think those three, because they're just so close, have the best chance to get there. So as we wrap this up, do you think there's any like surprise recruitments in this class that could um, shock Oklahoma fans? So, you know, I – of course, was uh, curious for a while there um, on 247. It looked like they still had Ni uh, Nicholas Harbor as warm for OU, but now it looks like he's kind of fallen off a little bit. Um, surprised that, you know, USC's not on there with Caleb Williams out at USC. But is there any surprise recruiter, like recruitments here in this class for OU? I keep an eye on Malachi Coleman, the four-star athlete out of Lincoln, Nebraska who with the latest 24-7 sports rankings up, update today is now the number 76 player nationally. And I just talked about one unicorn in P.J. Atabare. Here's another one in Malachi Coleman. Six foot five, 195 pounds, is being recruited as both an outside linebacker and a tight end slash wide receiver at the next level. Uh, I was told he ran a 4-3-5 laser a couple weeks ago. That's how that's how well that kid can move. He's cracked 10.4 in the 100-meter dash. And when you're talking about his size, he's, he's not as muscularly defined as Nicholas Harbor is, but he has the same – he could be 6'6 or 6'7. He's not done growing. Uh, he's In every way, he's Nicholas Harbor minus 30 pounds. And so when you're talking about a poor man's Nicholas Harbor – a poor man's Nicholas Harbor is still one heck of a football player, and that's what Malachi Coleman is. Now, the conventional rhetoric for the longest time has suggested he's just going to stay home and be a Nebraska Cornhusker, and there's merit to that. It seems that that's where the family wants him, and obviously it's right down the road in Lincoln. But here's what I know about Malachi Coleman. If Nebraska doesn't improve on the football field in 2020, uh, 2022, excuse me, he's going to leave. He will. And, and at that point, that that is another recruitment that could be heavily influenced by how many games Oklahoma wins in 2022 and how they look as a football team, how dominant they look in those wins. Coleman visited Oklahoma unofficially on June 10th. There's a possibility he ends up circling back around for an official in the fall. It's not on the schedule yet. Hasn't been set in stone but it's a possibility. Now, if it isn't Nebraska, say Nebraska falls on their face, they lose the season opener in week zero to Northwestern over in Ireland, and say they get it handed to them by Oklahoma on September 17th. That's the case. I think that's the point at which Malachi Coleman starts to legitimately look around and say, okay, I'm not comfortable going to Nebraska if they're not going to win football games and if this coaching staff – uh, may get completely turned over uh, heading into the 2023 season. I might be dealing with a new head coach, a new position coach, a new coordinator, et cetera, et cetera. I probably need to go look somewhere else. If it gets to that point right now, in my eyes, it's going to be a battle between Oklahoma and USC. So that, that might be a fun one for Sooner fans that are eager to score a legitimate head-to-head -head recruiting victory over their former head coach, who, of course, uh, is now the head ball coach at USC. So there is a world in which Malachi Coleman 
ends up at Nebraska and it's a pretty open and shut recruitment. Let's say Nebraska starts the season four and one, five and one, that one loss coming to Oklahoma, but they prove that they're not the same downtrodden football team that they have been for the last five seasons. If that's the case, Malachi Coleman's probably a Husker. That doesn't happen. All bets are off, man. And tell you this much, Joe John Finley as a recruiter appeals to a certain type of person, not a certain type of player, a certain type of person by virtue of his personality and his reserved, even keel demeanor. Malachi Coleman's that type of person. And so it's not really a surprise uh, to talk to him and folks around him and hear that Joe John Finley really, really clicked with him. So if it's not Nebraska at the end of the day for Malachi Coleman, and the Huskers fall out of contention, I'm going to start to like Oklahoma's chances a whole lot more than I do right now. And I think they have decent chances at the moment. They're in it, no doubt. But those are odds that have the chance to exponentially increase from August to October uh, if if the lines fall just so.